The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This is Conspiranormal. Let's get into it. I did enjoy the book. Uh, Serfiel's read the book as well. Absolutely. We got some. We got a lot of. We got a lot of questions between us. So. Sure. Um, very cool that Nashville is represented in the book a lot too. So. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that you just you you want to you want to cover every area you possibly can, but it's just impossible. <laughs> so I tried to. Try to stay restricted to our region. Yeah, and it's, it's very specific in Mid-South. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, all right, let's get started. Um, all right, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, guys. We are here. It's episode 301. We survived the 300th episode. Yes. We're getting fairly back to normal. We had a really big one for 301. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about this one. This has been kind of a long time coming. Um, we have on the line Tony Kale, and he's written a book called Stories of Root Workers and Hoodoo in the Mid-South. And we're kind of continuing our little discussions about folk magic. Mm-hmm. And this time we're going to hit on uh, the concept of hoodoo. Uh, we kind of talked with Jack Montgomery who Tony good, is actually writing friend, a book yeah. with. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit about that. We talked to him about uh, kind of like the powwow tradition. Now we're going to get into something that's a little closer to home for us being where we are and where Tony is um, about hoodoo. So Tony, welcome to uh conspiracy normal, man. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was telling you in the, uh, pre-show banter that uh it's been a long time coming to get you on here and i uh, really appreciate you being on i i, I just um I, I start off with every guest pretty much the same way and we kind of go from there but i i kind of wanted to get your background and how you kind of got involved with studying this subject and i kind of also understand that you've uh, you've been around for a little while and you've you used to be like somebody that was a consultant for like police for like satanic crimes. And you've kind of have like a more nuanced aspect of that now. So I kind of wanted to get your, how that kind of evolved for you. Sure. 
um, you know, years ago, um, being here in the Mid-South, I was actually a, a sheriff's deputy, and we would have situations where deputies would run into cases uh, involving different, um, what was believed to be different magico-religious traditions. And um, one of the first ones was an encounter with a couple that were uh, neo-pagan practitioners of Wicca, and uh, it was a, a, a priest and priestess, and they had some interaction with local law enforcement, and uh, the, the officers that responded were a little bit shocked at some of the things they saw. Um, they, they weren't familiar with uh, some of the tools and some of the, the uh, different aesthetics uh, they found when they encountered the, the group. And um, so they became frightened. And mm. uh, the uh, there was this fear in the air. And of course, growing up in this area, there's always been um, this this element of suspicion. And, and this really ties into where we see the history of hoodoo and, and folk practices is there's always been this fear and this suspicion. And, you know, I, I grew up in a background in a Southern Baptist church growing up that, uh, you know, you were taught that essentially anything that wasn't Southern Baptist was, you know, probably going to be some sort of devil worshiping human <laughs> sacrifice cult, you know? Right. Right. And so through the years, um, having exposure to different practitioners and different activities and, and beginning in that area in law enforcement, um, you know, you start seeing that the perceptions about a particular culture versus the reality of a particular culture often clash. And whereas you would have someone say, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that, uh, you know, these kids who are dressed in black and, uh, who are, are going into a cemetery and talking about having this ritual. They're probably, you know, killing people and killing animals and this and that. And, and of course, you did have, you know, uh, the, the popularity of sort of the roll your own yeah. um, pseudo uh, occultism at times where, um, you know, you'd have some misguided teenager who would grab a hold of, um, you know, anything they could find from the local bookstore. And now all of a sudden they're creating their little roll their own sect. Um, but as far as actual practitioners of magical religious traditions, um, I began to see this trend that there was this overall fear, um, particularly among public safety agencies. Uh, we had a, a situation happen, and this was, I think this was the early 90s, uh, in which there was a, a uh, particular neo-pagan group in um, actually right outside of Nashville. And they were having a, a uh, celebration on private property. And there was drumming, and there was dancing, and there was singing. You know, nothing nothing uh, too crazy. And uh, No human sacrifice. No human sacrifice, no, no. And uh, someone that lived near this area called the police and said, there are people out here in robes, they have knives, there are children... Um, I think we saw an animal. And so, you know, everyone locally just converges on the ceremony. And one of the uh, state police officers that arrived at the scene um, speaks to the priestess over the ceremony and uh, basically says, look, you know, you guys might want to tone it down a little bit. 
you know, the, the redneck down the hill has called and is scared to death. You're up here doing something horrible. <laughs> and, uh, and, and everybody just kind of went their way. And he said, look, I've had training about this. I understand you're not doing anything that's criminal. You know, it's just sort of a noise thing. Well, a local law enforcement, uh, person in authority, um, made the statement that this is not a religion and it won't be practiced in my County. Okay. And so then this became a, a civil issue. Right. And one of the things that, um, one of the things that we did is I, I met with members of that group and we documented interviews as to what happened on that day. And, then we did interviews regarding what could have taken place differently to make this have been a, a, a different outcome. But because my belief is being on that, that other side of the coin and understanding, seeing and hearing things that you're not familiar with, you immediately sometimes think the worst. Yeah. And so basically that began a friendship and relationship with uh, a number of members of the, the uh, magical community in Middle Tennessee. And we would do training um, for police on understanding what they're going to see um, when you approach a ritual. Um, you know, what, what practitioners can do. Hey, you know, if you're in the middle of a ritual and you, you have a, a pointed object in your hand, even though you're not using it for cutting, just be aware that can be perceived as a weapon. Um, you know, yeah. just, uh, a mode of transcultural communication. Yeah. You were trying to bridge the gap between the two. Exactly. Cause you've got exactly. a police force that probably had a lot of their own religious biases yeah. that were going into this. And, and, and you're, you're defending that very first amendment. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, you know, it's, so it's, it's, especially here in the South, it's, it's traditionally been a very, um, a very challenging area to bring those two camps together in, in a, in a form of understanding. I think now where we're at in 2020, we've, we've, as the expression says, we've come a long way, baby. Uh, we now have a lot more of awareness and a lot more education and, and less situations like we had, you know, years ago. Um, that being said, one of the things that started occurring in the Mid-South is um, I started seeing a number of um, interactions with new diverse communities coming into the area. So you had practitioners of Latin American religions, you had um, practitioners of African religions, and much like some of the earlier you know, incarnations of the fear, that began popping its head up in the area. And so I, uh, um, to, to, to bring you the, the, the long, uh, the, the long road into a short story, I, um, had been doing some work, uh, with some of the different communities, uh, spent some time in Florida with, with some of the, uh, different Afro-Caribbean communities and met a, cultural anthropologist there who provided training for the city of Miami on some of the different Afro Latin religious cultures. And when I, when I saw what he was doing in taking 
the field of anthropology and bridging that misunderstanding between police, fire, EMS, and say someone practicing, um, you know, regla de ocha, santeria. Um, it, it, uh, it, it hit me. This was it. This, this is the bridge. And so um, I, I went back to school and um, got my degree in cultural anthropology and also started doing some work with an NGO in East Africa. And in doing that, I was able to see a lot of healing traditions there that were very similar to some of the healing traditions I had seen growing up in the Mid-South. Interesting. The, the use of herbs, the, the use of uh, different materials infused with spirit. Um, and it was amazing to see the parallels between those two. And so... Uh, I right at the cusp of all of this um, was reunited with a friend who I grew up with. And um, I remember his grandmother was always known for uh, doing what she would call remedies. And there would be people who would come to the house and people who would call the house cities outside the area and they would come see her and she'd provide these medicinal remedies and someone had contacted me and said, hey, there is, there is a, a little elderly lady who walks into this local market. And when she walks in, she walks around the perimeter of the store with her keys out and she shakes them. Mm-hmm. And then when she comes back to the entrance, she announces, ain't no more voodoo in here. Huh. And so... You know, as you can imagine, the customers were enthralled. You know, what what is she doing? What is she talking about? And she would come in on a daily basis. And this is a a small country store. And one day there was a a local judge who was in the store eating lunch. And he had mentioned that he had been having some knee problems. And so the lady, who turned out to be my friend's grandmother, Miss Jessie, told him if he would wait there, she would go home and bring him back some medicine. And so she returned with a jar of, of salve, and she told him how to apply it and a technique to apply it and said that within three or four days, he should be feeling better. And three or four days later, he was feeling better. And, you know, this, this held a lot of water because of his position in the local community. Um, this wasn't just someone saying, you know, um, uh, this stuff really works. This was someone that locals looked up to. Um, and by him verifying that, yes, this medicine was effective, uh, really carried a lot of weight. And when I found out that it was Miss Jesse, um, I went back and started visiting her again. And the more we talked And the more things I saw and experienced with her, the more I started seeing these aspects of African healing, not only uh, in East Africa, um, in Miami, in among some of the practitioners in in Memphis and Nashville of some of the Afro-Latin religions, um, but also with her. And it really, really resonated. And a lot of this joining together of these different parts took place over a number of years. 
And we started seeing, I would, I would hear stories and see stories about healers and root workers. And um, as you start digging into this, you know, you find out that, wow, there, there is a amazing story of survival and persistence starting with the first slave that was kidnapped from their home and brought um, to, to the shores of Memphis. And some of the earliest mentions of the use of herbal medicines by slaves in Shelby County in Memphis. And um, it, it was sort of a um, situation where once you turned over a story, another story would connect and another story would connect. And all of this led to uh, the writing of, of the, the first book, uh, A Secret History of Memphis Hoodoo. And there were stories upon stories of root work and conjure and healers in the Mid-South and uh, just the history of things in the Mid-South. And um, I, I felt that that needed to be shared uh, yeah. with the community, shared with the world. And, and there was material that uh, I just couldn't fit in there. And so that became uh, stories of root workers in hoodoo in the Mid-South. Okay. And I also wanted to expand because we saw that a lot of healers in Memphis had connections outside of Memphis. You know, you would have uh, healers in Memphis who would be connected to, uh, let's say, uh, an herb doctor in Mississippi. Or, you know, there would be... Uh, healers or, or even clients in Memphis who would take the train out of Memphis uh, to Arkansas to mm -hmm. see uh, Caroline die. And so there, there were all these regional connections uh, to, to these practices. And so uh, that's that sort of led us to where we are today with the book. So hoodoo does originally come from Africa, I guess specifically West Africa. That kind of establishes like the the origins the origins of it, and I, I think the, really the the kind of the, the basic question I'm sure you've gotten before is what's the difference between the hoodoo tradition and voodoo? Because most often they're they're really lumped together, and there is there are some di some some differences between the two. Sure, you know hoodoo and voodoo um, are best explained as branches from the same tree. That tree is African traditional religion. Uh, hoodoo itself, for many, is not considered a quote, religion with codified uh, priest and priestesses, uh, sacred text, um, you know, specific things while there, you know, there, there are writings that are considered sacred, like the Bible and the Psalms and some of the different European grimoires that ended up uh, in, in the practices of Mid-South Hoodoo. Uh, it, 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 by many, it was embraced as a set of practices derived from African traditional religion. Uh, now, there are practitioners who will tell you, this is my tradition. This is my religion. <laughs> and, you know, again, that's, that's in the, the, that's in the eye of the practitioner. Um, I'm, I'm not a practitioner myself, so I can't speak for that. But what I can say is uh, voodoo is uh, different than hoodoo in that it is a codified religion with priests and priestesses, with 
uh, specific initiatory rights with specific practices that are codified and a a lineage. Now, the uh, we saw in a lot of early, especially media depictions of hoodoo, um, we started seeing where once those outside of the community uh, started hearing about the culture and learning about it, um, instead of um, you know trying to understand it, they immediately labeled it as voodoo. Right. And right. This was in in that particular concept of voodoo was a very derogatory concept of voodoo. It was not voodoo. It was not actual voodoo practitioners, um, but this Hollywood um, stereotype racist imagery of right. you know black savage priests and witch doctors and you know zombies grabbing up you know blonde haired white women. I mean it yeah. was. That was the concept. I had to. I had to look up the. I'm so glad you printed that poster for Bakumba Love. Oh, because uh, uh, I had I had to look that that uh, that trailer up, and that was pretty funny. It's it's so sad that uh, you know I, there were so many images being portrayed in Hollywood mm-hmm. and in the press uh, of African traditional religion and. You know, you would have movies like Makumba Love and yeah. uh, some of the different movies where they would offer, you know, voodoo dolls to patrons of the theater. Or they would offer uh, someone dressed up in what they perceived would be a, a voodoo priestess outfit. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's laughable in that it's horribly campy, but in, right. the, same, in the same vein it also contributed to these stereotypes that ultimately contributed to violence against practitioners. Right. It, it was interesting that that movie was called that because um, that's a Brazilian term. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and you would find, you would see in the press this just, you know, buffet of terminology associated with African religious traditions right. and, um, you know, with, with no consideration as to context or true meaning well i i want to make the point here and, and this was a very enlightening in your book to me was that we talked we mentioned the satanic panic stuff before and a lot of this that was said about hoodoo back in i guess the 40s into the well really probably the 30s into like the 60s the last century too though is very reminiscent of the satanic panic yeah. material but with the racial element that but with the racial more, element yeah. right so th- right. this the the you can almost like trace the satanic panic worries to like this odd racial <laughs> but I, I would say that time that, period i would say that a lot of that stuff is earlier European into the pogroms also yeah. and into the yeah. anti-Jewish stuff. So it's right. kind of like a continuation of template that was already there. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. the other, and, then, and, then, and it adds those, power to it too. That's the thing is I was wanting to ask and find a place to insert a question about whether what happened in the demonization of all this stuff actually gave some of these practitioners more power because people were more afraid 
I, th- I think that's a great point. I think that in a lot of cases, it did build the perception yeah. of power among practitioners. You know, the, the, the sad part of this is that the majority of root workers and healers, particularly in the Mid-South, were focused on helping people. They were yeah. focused on healing members of the community. They were focused on surviving you know, on plantations where there was little to no medical care. And uh, all of a sudden they're, they're being, you know, blamed as being these conjurers that are out, you know, stealing babies out of homes during the night and, uh, you know, going through where they're going through mass arrests. And in the Um, syncretic world, it probably wouldn't have been easier for people with like some old uh, traditions from Germany or the British Isles to carry things versus like slaves doing things. It would have been more prosecuted and been like, Oh, this is, you know, you're doing some pagan evil thing. Absolutely. You know, there's a, um, it, it was fascinating to see how, you know, immediately a lot of the African traditions were equated with, with demon rights and deviltry. And, um, and you know, it, it was, it was interesting to see in the Mid-South because um, you had a lot of practitioners who um, you <laughs> uh, the the you would have the the overall outside community, t- typically the white community, that would talk about the demonic activities of root workers. But then you would go and you would speak to prominent healers, and they would tell you many of their clients. And in some cases, the majority of their clients would be members of the white community. So it's almost yeah. like there's a fear of you, but I want to get what you have. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's it, uh, it, fascinating history of it. That goes into what I, what I also had written down about the relationship between the hoodoo practitioners and the church. And it seems that in a lot of the more like the white evangelical Protestant churches that have, there was this animus against it very much. So you, you reprint something. I, I believe that was from Nashville where they were saying that we're going to speak out against the hoodoo and all this, but in the African American community in the churches, you had a lot of the pastors and reverends that really embraced it and really, brought it into their into their church life well you know in in a lot of the african-american churches there was this respect for african tradition and in many of the white churches you know we saw this this almost propaganda campaign of where you would have speakers um either claiming to be former conjurers or mm. speaking about, um, you know, the dangers of hoodoo and root work. And uh, the, in the African-American churches, there, there was also some, some uh, uh, resistance in, in some of the churches um, speaking out against it. There's a, uh, there was an incident that actually took place on Bill Street uh, and one of the, the biggest uh, African-American churches on Beale where there was a, uh, a, a missionary who came to visit and was, was speaking at the church and spoke about how he looked out in the audience and basically said that he, he I know some of you practice this foolish, superstitious hoodoo. 
And uh, it, uh, you know, so there, there was definitely that resistance there. But later on, when we started seeing um, some of the, uh, particularly the spiritualist churches that came out of New Orleans, um, we started seeing this melding of Christian tradition and African traditional religion. And some say that uh, that that particular um, strain of churches, if you will, um, helped a lot of the practices survive. Because once that point in history came where um, terms like hoodoo and root work were looked upon as um, something to look down on, um, I'll, I'll still have incidents where... Uh, I may be talking to someone who um, I, I had a lady, uh, an older African-American lady come to one of my lectures and uh, she just kind of shook her head and she said, oh, that old stuff. I remember that old stuff. And Interesting. just like, it was, you know, something to look down on. Yeah. Um, but the, the flip side is um, that once a lot of the practices went into the spiritualist churches, um, you, you saw a lot of the practices survive and endure. And for for some people, it was hard to swallow the concept of root work, but it was easier to swallow the concept of going to church and having someone give you a root that's been blessed. Yeah, right. And that's there, the same syncretism that's always been there. Yeah, yeah. And, and there were there were two figures that I I wanted to talk to you about in that uh, from that chapter that you mentioned, Bishop McEwen and the Reverend Willie Maxwell. And oh. you've got basically one of these guys uses it for good, essentially, and the other one really, really uses it for, for evil. <laughs> yeah. You know, Bishop McEwen um, came up in our research when we were doing research with some of the families that operated some of the hoodoo curio companies out of Memphis and Lucky Heart Cosmetics. Um, which used to uh, offer a lot of, of hoodoo curios of candles and powders and oils and things like that. Um, they did a lot of work employing members of the African-American community when uh, there wasn't a lot of work available and, and segregation was strong. And um, there were a lot of families that, that didn't have opportunities that Lucky Heart really um, contributed to, to hiring um, members of the black community as sales agents. And during this time, there was a relationship that formed between Lucky Heart Cosmetics and a couple of different folks involved in the Church of God in Christ out of Memphis. Now, uh, Church of God in Christ has some interesting history related to African traditional spirituality um, in that, uh, some of the, some of the founders, um, were, uh, very adamant about talking about the use of herbs and the power mm -hmm. of herbs and that God could be seen through different plants and herbs. And so that, that had always been there, but, uh, Bishop McEwen, um, became a friend of Lucky Heart and actually, um, sold, some of their products at some of the church conventions. And Bishop McEwen would also uh, go around, and this is from 
this is from research from interviews uh, with some of the folks that that knew him uh, back in the day, and they would tell about how he would travel around West Tennessee and speak at these small churches. And at the end of his presentation, he would put different uh, curios on the table and different oils and things uh, and, and makeup products, because that was Lucky Hart's biggest focus was was makeup for the African-American community. Okay. And uh, so he would put these products on the table and he would tell them, um, hey, each one is available for a dime or a nickel. And uh, the person that gets the last product up here um, will win a prize. And so as everyone came and took a product and would leave a dime on the table, the last person actually received a sales kit from Lucky Heart Cosmetics. And he essentially uh, <laughs> recruited a new yeah. sales agent through that presentation. Um, but yeah, Bishop McEwen, um, you know, was ended up doing some endorsement for Lucky Heart uh, and, and some of their old promotional products. And uh, there was, you know, there was a good relationship there. Yeah. Now contrast that to the the Reverend uh, Maxwell, and uh, Reverend Maxwell uh, out of Alabama decided that uh, he would use a lot of the aesthetics of of conjure of more aggressive forms of of spiritual um, techniques to to intimidate. And so Maxwell, um, you know, became known for this. And uh, while he was a minister, he was also feared in the local community. And uh, his life ended tragically um, with someone shooting him. And after his death, just an insane amount of uh, stories and drama uh, about this, this reverend came out. Uh, in the news and um, where, you know, he had uh, allegedly been tied to a number of different murders, that he had allegedly been tied to a number of different uh, uh, unethical relationships yeah. with uh, local females. And um, but again, and that, that's a that's a really good example of such a contrast of uh, those who would, you know, look to promote the culture versus bastardizing for their own selfish means. But just in general, this, these practices were so ingrained in the people who came to the Americas that it was pretty much impossible to completely separate them. So can you give like a, a real kind of general idea of what root work and hoodoo kind of this framework for how they worked as far as it was, it really boils down to people using either, um, plants that had some kind of actual medicinal value or there's symbolic magical um, correspondences between some kind of substance and an idea or thinking that these substances had a magical power to them. Absolutely. The, you know, the, 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 the evolving and, and changing of the, the root working traditions took place on slave plantations. And a lot of academics refer to, to root work on these plantations as the secret institution. Yeah. Um, you know, healers served as physicians and counselors and therapists. And 
and sometimes security even. Um, because they had the ability to rely on traditional wisdom in regards to using the environment for protection um, from sickness and protection from physical enemies and spiritual enemies. And so um, as this developed, you would have members of the community, um, you know, let's say someone's child is sick and um, this is past, you know, um, the, the slavery and, and uh, years later, uh, you might have someone whose child is sick and um, let's say they, they don't trust conventional health care or Western health care, however you want to term that. Um, and or they, they maybe don't have the means to, to pay for that health care or or they just simply believe in the traditions that they grew up with and they go and they, they would see a healer and they, the healer would assess the client and um, they might perform a, um, an act of divination to, to ask a particular spirit as to what's going on, or they may pray about what's going on. And then they would, uh, uh, give a, a treatment, and that treatment could be in the form of some form of ritualistic practice, be it laying on of hands or praying or chanting or um, doing some sort of cleansing over the person. And they might also uh, prescribe a specific remedy, and they may have something that has already been pre-made. Uh, Miss Jessie would have a lot of salves and herbal medicines that uh, she would make up uh, pre-made that was used for specific uh, illnesses and ailments. And uh, I remember asking her, I said, you know, who taught you to do this? And she would say, my daddy. And then she would say, you know, he's, he's dead now, but sometimes he speaks to me. Wow. And she would talk about, uh, he also uh, had some Native American lineage and she would talk about the influence of that in creating her medicines. Right. And, and so, you know, the, the, the applying of these, these prescriptions, if you will, or these remedies uh, would be performed. And in uh, and, and some cases, the, the client might be given specific materials as a form of protection. Maybe it's a root. Maybe it's a, a small bag containing different elements. Uh, to carry with you for protection. And there was, you know, sort of this, uh, uh, just sort of a, 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 uh, a custom in yeah. how healers would operate in these specific practices. Well, I think for, for anybody who might have some kind of reaction to this and think, oh, this is primitive or something like that, I mean, we, yeah. we're not immune to this. Anyone who engages with Western medicine, they do the same things. There's a, there's a, a psychological component to it and then there's the herbal or healing component it's the same thing we do when we go to a big hospital and trust these institutions and you know we we i think we really attribute doctors in western medicine the same amount of authority that you would to a, a hoodoo or a witch doctor i don't think it's any different yeah it's you know i mean we we do follow those same customs it 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 so people say it doesn't make sense, you know, oh, this, this element doesn't make sense that <laughs> that particular herb doesn't do this or do, going through this. But if for those people it might, you know, be one of those two elements, psychological or actual, you know, healing or. 
Well, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our medicines come from herbs and from roots. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I always say, you know, the, the, the difference among a lot of the herbal remedies that are prescribed by root workers is that theirs usually doesn't have about a three hour warning on <laughs> all the side effects of, you know, what it's going to take uh, w- once you take that. That's um, an extremely good point. So, you know, it's, uh, and, and it really is, it's, it's all about worldview and context. There are a number of people that I've encountered since, uh, since beginning to write on this subject that will say things like, Oh, I, you know, I never did anything like that, but you know, my grandmother used to hang up garlic. Oh yeah. There you go. And, and my grandmother, I had someone tell me one day, you know, my grandmother used to do this weird thing. Now she never did any of that hoodoo stuff, but she would take urine and put it on the steps and mop the steps with urine. Now I don't understand what that was about, but I don't think it was any kind of hoodoo. (laughs) So, you know, and, and then we also have to understand too, in the mid South, a lot of times hoodoo was not called hoodoo. It was just remedies. It was just spiritual work. So it, it wasn't necessarily labeled anything specific that, you know, that, that we would think, uh, would, would be called a particular tradition. Right. Because it was just a normal, just another facet of life really for a lot of these people. There was no, it was just part of their tradition essentially that they were, that they were used to. And Absolutely. I, I've noticed that too. I mean, I, I can think of things uh, growing up now, obviously I think, you know, in my um, experience, a lot of it probably is more based on the Appalachian folk magic tradition, but it seems that there's more of uh, a lot of people. They, they, they see these things and they remember their grandparents doing these things, for particular reasons. There's little things that I can remember my grandparents doing that they may not even have known why they did it, but it's just these weird, these, these traditions that are passed down for generation to generation. And a lot of people don't, understand it i think now as we're was like more and more studies are being done books like yours books like jack people are really starting to grasp what this is and i i wanted to ask too like you know you mentioned the the one of us like their grandfather or their father was from the native american tradition it's like there's also this amalgamation between the European folk magic, African folk magic, and the Native American tradition, and it all just kind of like comes together in these in now these different American traditions. Yeah, that's I, I'll tell you that right now is the million dollar question yeah. among uh, practitioners and academics and folklorists, and yeah. that is, you know, is is hoodoo one thing or is it a combination of many things? Um, my, my take on that is that one, uh, mid South hoodoo, which is the only one that I feel like I can speak to mid South hoodoo was and is African based African American tradition. Now, were there elements that practitioners, you know, maybe picked up from native American practitioners? No doubt. Um, in Memphis, we have um, we have a place that's that's known 
locally by this this horrible terminology is voodoo village. Uh, and oh, yeah, it is I've heard a, of that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a big, um, you know, a, a big rite of passage for, you know, literally hundreds of Memphians through the years growing up to drive out to this particular area where there's a home. And, you know, uh, there, there were all sorts of allegations that black magic and sacrifices and all kinds of Hollywood interpretations of voodoo are practiced. Well, the, 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 the truth is, is that there is no quote voodoo village, but there was a place known as the St. Paul's spiritual temple. And the family that has operated the temple, um, very much the, the patriarch of the family, um, came from an area in Mississippi that he had a lot of strong Native American lineage in his background. And he was known to tell people that God showed the black man and the Indian some things he didn't show the white man. And that was, uh, that really explained a lot of the, the work he did. He would do a lot of healing through herbs and through prayer and through laying on of hands and um, nothing dastardly or any kind of sorcery or anything that, that most of the, the legend trips have built up to, uh, to be. Um, but yeah, definitely there was that influence of Native America and African tradition uh, among a lot of Mid-South practitioners. I want to ask you a little bit about the books that are involved um, that some of the practitioners would use. The was it the sixth and seventh book of Moses? And they're largely popular books. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was interesting. There was a, a time in Hoodoo. Some academics term this time as the golden age of Hoodoo. Now you'll you'll also find practitioners and families of practitioners who say this particular period was sort of the watering down of the tradition because uh, a lot of families that practiced were introduced to bookstores and candle shops that carried a lot of mass-produced items. Um, and one of the things that became very popular was reprints of a lot of European spell books. And so you started seeing this influence. And again, a lot of this depends on the practitioner. You know, you, I know one particular family that the, the, um, the matriarch in the family, um, practiced root work and was very, very traditional in her practices. But she also utilized some of the books she picked up on Beale Street growing up uh, in, in one of the spiritual supply stores. And so you started seeing this introduction yeah. of some of these elements into spiritual workers' culture. And it was interesting to see, and I mentioned this in a book, you know, you would have someone in the Mississippi Delta um, that may have never in their life been in contact with anyone that practices, say, a form of ceremonial magic. But they have gotten literature that they've ordered or that someone has, has brought to them um, on ceremonial magic and, and uh, aspects of everything from the the you know, lesser key of Solomon to the books of Moses to, to all these different European grimoires. Mm -hmm. And 
this became a fascinating inroad uh, with the culture that a lot of these these books made. And and you did see um, practitioners, particularly those that would kind of consider themselves conjurers, mm-hmm. uh, utilizing a lot of this this literature. What role did like any fraternal esoteric fraternal organizations have in in spreading? this kind of stuff. Was there the same kind of um, the way that high magic was tolerated in a lot of the white esoteric fraternal orders? Did any of this carry any of this kind of stuff? Do you have any evidence of that? Well, we do know that there were, um, there were individuals um, like uh, Beverly Pascal. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, you know, had one foot in the world of esoteric fraternal organizations and one foot uh, as well in uh, African traditional practices. And so you you did see this carry over uh, in, in some situations. Um, the uh, uh, it, I think it was later on, uh, it would be a more contemporary manifestation of a lot of that. Um, but yeah, it, it did occur. That's very interesting. And then do you have any kind of genealogies for how some of these roots or substances became embedded with this spiritual power? Is Have you traced any of this stuff back to, are there like African analogs perhaps that, you know, reminded people or maybe it was the same species of plants that people used or? I think we do have record of where there are particular herbs that are used uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and different communities that, that were also utilized in, in you know, here in the, the U.S. Um, we, know for, we know for sure that a lot of the material components um, that, that many times utilized herbs um, were utilized in African society and then later on here, um, you know, the concepts like the mojo bag uh, or the nation sack, um, we do see that there are African um, uses of the same types of materials. So there's definitely uh, an echo of that uh, in African societies. Were they looking for things that you think might have, I guess, just like looked or smelled like like the herbs across the across the water? Quite possible. Um, you know, I'm sure that happened in, in some situations. And uh, also, you know, we, we do know from, from early writings of slaves that um, some things that the, the traditional healers just sort of had a, a grasp of yeah. what materials were available locally. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, in Shelby County, you would hear about the bark of specific trees being used to treat uh, stomach illness, and this was something that the local traditional healer that was originally living in Africa uh, had had knowledge of that this local material could be used. So I think it would be fascinating to see that lineage of yeah. how those herbs may have changed, and and what do you have to go to um, as a substitute. Yeah, because that, that's why I think a lot of modern people might see something like, oh, use this route for that. And they're like, why? But there's obviously yeah. some kind of, you can trace a, a meaning to it, a genealogy of that meaning. Absolutely. And, you know, and part of that, too, is 
the re, the reliance on herbs in root work in many cases um, isn't necessarily just the 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 herb itself, but it's that spiritual fusion yeah. or correspondence, like getting practice. some graveyard dirt or some other kind of yes. element or stone that means something symbolically. Absolutely. What is some of the connections? Because you uh, you mentioned some of the rituals in the book. Uh, I want to hit uh, buried crossings. Now, is this is this something that you, you hear a lot about? Like you know the old like the Robert Johnson mythology. Like, what's kind of the connection to that and like the crossroads? Is the, is there a connection in that? Well, you know, it's. Uh... It's it's almost now it's almost a cliche about Robert Johnson Robert Johnson at the crossroads and um, you know as as we look back historically um, you know a lot of musicologists have have said you know that's that most likely was was Tommy Johnson his cousin that was being referred to uh, as quote making this deal but even deeper this quote deal um, most likely wasn't with the the you know the american image of what we would call satan but would be more likely to be perhaps a uh, the, right. an african deity like legba that is huh. recognized as being you know at the crossroads so is to and, cross essentially meaning you're bringing the spiritual world into the horizontal world of the earth like well that the crossing, crossing somebody. When you cross someone, it's it. That's typically we would, to to use sort of a European contemporary yeah. term, we might say to you know to hex somebody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's the same somebody. thing of that a hex is. It's still, uh, you know, it's yeah. still these two these two lines. Absolutely, and it's you know that, um, that whole concept of buried crossings. You know, a lot of times you would see. Um, forms of of sympathetic magic being used with that and um you know if if someone has done you wrong they may uh bury something under your front porch yeah yeah and uh or, we just got it in the language you've crossed me it's just in the language even if you don't believe in any of that right right and it's it's interesting to see how a lot of those materials manifested uh in mid-south history we there was a time where uh, in Alabama, there were a lot of reports of medical professionals um, having patients who were, were deathly ill. And the, the patient would say, um, somebody has conjured me. And um, they, they might report others that they discovered on their property. And they start to slowly mentally deteriorate. Uh, what's interesting is you know, a lot of stuff that we see uh, to those outside uh, the understanding of a lot of this, uh, a lot of people may say, you know, well, that's that's ridiculous, and who would believe in things like that? And that's not anything I was raised around. And um, you know, root work and uh, different spiritual techniques have such a powerful influence that among mental health professionals in the, the uh, diagnostic statistical manuals that they use to diagnose different mental illnesses and, and mental challenges actually carried what they called cultural bound syndromes. And they mentioned root work and they, they would follow up and mention the old concept of voodoo death that 
someone who believes that they were cursed or hexed or crossed or whatever term you would like to use um, could eventually mentally deteriorate and it will affect their behavior. It's like the and, mind over matter kind of concept. Right. So, so this whole idea of like the buried crossings of putting that, like burying that somewhere, isn't there like not to harp too much on this, but in that whole mythology of the crossroads, isn't that the part of the ritual is burying something? So I guess that that comes from these hoodoo traditions. Well, there, there certainly are a number of ritualistic traditions uh, related to burying specific things um, or, or moving a specific object from one plane to another. Right. Uh, we, we know in Memphis, one of the, the big practices um, that for many years that was done, uh, if, if you came to a particular spiritual healer and said, you know, I believe somebody is, has conjured me, uh, they buried this object in my yard. Um, that the, the healer in many cases would take them down to the Mississippi River and have them turn their back to the river and throw that item over their shoulder into the river. And this was moving that buried object, moving that crossing out of that particular plane. Like the power of running water somehow gets rid of it. Uh, and then there's another concept. There's another ritual of the the idea of the conjure ball. Mm -hmm. Is that similar to this? Yeah, the uh, we we saw the the conjure ball, and and you'll find different manifestations of that particular artifact because I know in some of the Appalachian folklore there's the the use of a conjure ball, but but among mid south um, root workers. The conjure ball, in many cases, was something that would be discovered among someone's home that had been conjured. In fact, uh, there was an incident that took place around, I think it was Lauderdale in downtown, kind of toward downtown Memphis years ago, um, that uh, where there was a, a woman who called a local spiritual healer and said that she, was, she had been sick. And she found within her uh, her bed that somebody had placed this ball of all these feathers wrapped around a ball. And there were different uh, plants and things wrapped up on this ball. And this was uh, considered uh, some form of conjure that had been placed there that uh, uh, was to make her very sick. And what was interesting, uh, as, as a lot of this always relates back to, to race relations, uh, through its history, uh, this was a a well-to-do um, white female, and she had called on an African American female practitioner um, to to give her help. And you know, it's it's interesting. Again, throughout Mid South history, you would yeah. see um, a lot of the same communities that would snub root workers would be quick to turn to yeah. them uh, if if they felt they had a situation that involved root work or conjure. Do you, do you think any of that is because there there may be some kind of correlation in their minds about a a relation to the the Scotch Irish heritage of most of the European descendant people of the Mid South in the area? In that, um, is there is there any kind of connection between between those two worlds? You know that 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 you have found it all. I know, like when we talked to Jack, he talked a lot about these various traditions. I think there definitely, you know, were some, you know, there definitely had to be some encounters 
between the two cultures. And I think also there were, um, there were clients that were familiar in their own families with those traditions. So they respected, yeah. um, healing traditions and traditions that recognized spiritual causations of sickness. And, uh, so I think, you know, I do think that that did occur. You mentioned an interesting case in the book about the connection between hoodoo and this haunting in Fernwood, Mississippi, I think in the fifties. Yes. Uh, this was a, a really interesting case. There was a African American family who was experiencing some, uh, what, what we would probably term today, paranormal activity. Uh, chairs were being thrown around. Furniture was being knocked over. Uh, there was all sorts of psychic disturbances going on in this, this residence. And word got out to the local community. And, you know, people in the local community were, were scared to death. And um, there was even a, a local uh, law enforcement uh, officer that, that got involved on checking on the situation. And it was reported in the local press that he actually witnessed some of this activity as well. Um, but, but in the end, uh, sort of minimized it and also um, kind of backhanded, insulted the whole situation by referring to it, you know, as this is probably some of that hoodoo stuff um, that, uh, that obviously quote, they do, you know? And, uh, so it was, uh, it was an interesting situation, but it, uh, it definitely, um, brought the, one of the things that, that Jack and I, Jack Montgomery and I are focusing on in this new book is the interaction with what we would today call the paranormal, uh, in regards to, um, hauntings and, and ghosts and spirits and demons and angels, um, and how that reaction is, you know, um, you would see characters, different spiritual personalities, if you would, uh, among a lot of the different folk traditions in America. And, um, you know, you would see, uh, in, in the Delta, um, you know, you would hear stories about particular ghosts, and particular spirits. One of them uh, is the plat eye. And the plat eye, uh, according to, to lore, um, could be a spirit of a slave that was slain by their owner. And that particular spirit um, might be placed in areas where there was money buried. And I've talked with, with different folks who one is a, a blues uh, historian who'd spent some time in the Mississippi Delta and he recorded stories of families that talked about this plat eye spirit that would haunt a particular farm and uh, that uh, this particular slave owner at one time murdered a slave and kept the spirit of that slave in a particular region of this farm uh, to, to guard uh, whatever it was the, the owner had there. And the, the plat eye, um, while we would see, we, we found accounts of in, uh, in the Carolinas where the plat eye looked like a, a person and looked like a human being 
Um, in the Delta, there, there were actually reports of it looking like a bull, um, looking like this odd creature with strange eyes. Um, so there's a lot of different spiritual characters that show up or spiritual personalities that, that we would consider almost paranormal uh, figures today. Was that during the uh, the general treasure hunting, relic hunting uh, phase of the mid 19th century? You know, we did see some of that involved with that, and um, you know, it's it's fascinating to see the the amount of incidences that were recorded um, by non practitioners. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whether, whether it be in police reports, whether it be in the local press of where uh, people would take artifacts and rituals related to uh, conjure and would use them to to seek out buried treasure. And there's all <laughs> sorts of accounts. Uh, there's yeah. there's an account. Uh, there was an account in Memphis where police found these guys with sledgehammers uh, on this, this business property, and they were busting up the ground because uh, one of them had used a dowsing rod and spoke to a spirit <laughs> that told them where to go. And there, there's a famous story where um, one of the, the um, uh, George Washington Lee, uh, famous um, civil rights personality and um, local um, uh, important uh, part of Bill Street history, uh, had actually spoke of that there was a group of men who came up the Mississippi and they were hiring these treasure hunters or gold miners, they were calling themselves, were hiring conjurers off of Bill Street to take them and spiritually locate gold. And uh, he said that they would uh, they would hire someone and you know that person may instruct everybody to cover their body in a specific oil um, right. to you know utter specific chants and uh, you know, and, and then during this time, we also saw, you know, we, we mentioned the use of some of the European uh, spell books. We would see people take um, different aspects of books that perhaps had magical seals pertaining yeah. to locating, locating hidden treasures. And they would incorporate that with, with their, their treasure hunting. Uh, so, yeah, this was a, definitely a fascinating time. Yeah, a time that's very, very ignored, and um, people don't really understand it. And it puts a lot of uh, different social movements in America, from the Mormons to maybe some things like hoodoo, in a perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a question whether you think there really is a hoodoo revival going on now, or whether it's just like white folks you know, finding, rediscovering hoodoo for the first time in a long time. Um, I've always lived a real multicultural life and I feel like there really is a revival among, among African-Americans. It's, I, I think there really is something, but I want to know what, what you really think, whether there really is a, a revival, a popular revival going on. I think there is a, I think there's a discovery in a lot of different communities. I think that, um, African Americans um, that that maybe didn't focus on um, grasping some of this history growing up uh, now as adults see uh, the the great lineage back to traditions in their family and traditions in Black history and 
uh, I've, I've talked to African-American adults who will tell me, you know, I, I didn't know as a kid, but now I see, you know, um, how that was practiced in our family. And, uh, and again, you, you have a lot of families who it, it's, they'll, they'll share that, Hey, you know, this is something we've always had in our family. We just never mentioned it. And it's not something that, you know, we necessarily share with the world. And that's, you know, and that's, that's totally understandable. I think, um, I think there are a lot of people discovering the richness of this particular culture for the first time from, from all different racial backgrounds. Yeah. And I, I think there, um, I, I think there are some sincere attempts to, um, want to be part of that culture. I think there are also, uh, some attempts to, uh, basically make a buck, yeah. Uh, off of the discovery of this culture by those who, who've never been familiar with it. Um, I, I think that, you know, it, it, there's definitely, and I mean, that is such a timely question because every day I'm, I'm, I'm bombarded with, yeah. with people who will hit me up on social media and they're like, so-and-so says I can't practice this because I'm not this race or so-and-so says, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that they're trying to practice this and, you know, they've, they've never been exposed to this. Who are they to practice this? I'm a, I myself, I'm not a practitioner. I do respect the history and the culture and, and, you know, I know that that argument will probably continue. Um, it is my hope that regardless of, um, who tries to, to revive practices or continue practices, that that we all understand and respect that the, the the true culture is that survival and is that culture that um, has a lot to teach us about the history of humanity mm -hmm. of of uh, Africans that were taken from their home of whites that owned slaves of African Americans who survived segregation and violence and, um, you know, different, different groups in their, their role in this. What can we learn from the history of hoodoo? I'm, I'm not so much concerned with the practices as far as, uh, you know, how do you practice or what do you do as I am the history of what it has to tell us because, the, the history of hoodoo in the Mid-South uh, is not only that story of survival, but it's a story of how we look at people who are different than us, how we treat people that are different than us. Um, what do we do about health care? What health care is available? What health care is not available? Um, how do we respect each other's traditions without killing each other? I mean, there's there's so much that the history of, of hoodoo in the Mid-South has to tell us. And, and I think we need to all listen. And particularly in these days, I think we, we have a lot to, to learn from that history. But uh, I just hope that practitioners, whether they come from a generational background or it's something they just discovered yesterday, would, would respect uh, the history uh, of the culture. I want to hit, a, hit on a couple of people that you write about in the book. Sure. Um, Professor Warren, the war is den league. 
something <laughs> I never heard of. Yeah, Professor Warren. Professor Warren was a, a fascinating man. Um, Professor Warren operated off of uh, Bill Street, and he was a a spiritualist that um, operated an organization uh, called the War Is Den League, and there were multiple explanations for what that terminology means. One of the the biggest explanations that he gave people was that was a nickname that was given to him uh, during his his travels in the East. And uh, he sort of took it as a, a badge of honor, saying that he was um, sort of a, a powerful mystic figure. Um, he uh, he operated a uh, this organization that uh, kind of intermingled biblical teachings with um you know, uh, a little bit of root work, a little bit of conjure. Um, he uh, became a really well-known uh, local celebrity, and uh, he was uh, was a very, very interesting figure. He, um, his organization, along with different philosophical teachings, uh, he would teach members of the local African American community um, how to uh, manage their money how to utilize finances, how to um, organize a business. And uh, he was a, a, a fascinating character. And so he kind of steeped some of his thoughts and his beliefs into like this, into the hoodoo system. Yeah, there were, there were elements of the elements of the, the culture that uh, he would utilize in his practices. He also utilized, um, different elements in relation to, um, teachings, uh, from Hinduism. Um, right. it, it was interesting, uh, in, during the history, the mid South hoodoo and, and, and spiritual traditions like this, um, Hinduism was, was recognized as a very deep spiritual system. And so you would see imagery and aesthetics that uh, a lot of Americans associated with Hinduism, uh, and some of them are really bad stereotypes, um, yeah. but um, you would see that placed in the ads of different hoodoo curio products. Uh, you would see spiritual healers, you know, don a turban or uh, have different uh, clothing that sort of uh, had an air of, of relation to Indian culture. And uh, so there, there was definitely something that a lot of the, the different personalities utilized. There's also a lot of Egyptian imagery too. Yes. Yes. And that had a lot of, that had a lot of cool, like Afrocentric connotations to people. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, with, with the, and they'd say Ethiopian too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was, you know, you would, you would see sort of a, a buffet of different spiritual traditions uh, utilized in aesthetics among uh, a lot of the, the healers in uh, the Mid-South, particularly in Memphis uh, area. And uh, Lynchia Johnson was another one I found <laughs> particularly Johnson. interesting. Yeah. This is all, Do I think he's Memphis as well, right? Yeah, Dr. Johnson was, was uh, um, what, a, what a figure. He, uh, Dr. Johnson was a uh, root man. He originally uh, was in Louisiana, and he moved to um, 
he came to Memphis and established himself. And Dr. Johnson was was fascinating in that he was a pharmacist, but he also utilized root work. And so he would put out products that incorporated elements of what we could, you know, might consider conventional Western medicines with elements of spirituality. For instance, he would put out uh, a particular powder uh, that would be used to address a specific ailment. And it might look like uh, something you'd pick up from the local pharmacy. Um, but then on the back, he would put a particular, you know, spiritual message, or he might put a, a piece of, of biblical scripture on the back of that particular product. Um, Dr. Johnson became very well known on Bill Street. In fact, he had a, a beautiful home at the end of Bill Street at one time, and uh, people would come see him. And at one point, Dr. Johnson, um, like many root workers in the Mid-South, uh, faced um, uh, taking some heat from local police because uh, in many cases, root workers and spiritual healers uh, would would kind of be under the scope and, and police would utilize charges uh, typically related to practicing medicine without a license um, and, and different charges to shut down spiritual healers. Um, we found that at one time there was a lot of heat placed on spiritual healers on Bill Street because physicians in Memphis were saying they were losing patients to healers on Bill Street. And yeah. so you would find local police sort of putting the heat on, on spiritual healers. But getting back to, to Lynchia, uh, Lynchia was involved in a case, Dr. Johnson was involved in a case where a, um, there was a sting set up by a particular police agency um, where they had ordered some products through the mail from Dr. Johnson. And he misinterpreted uh, some of the, the ailments and, and some of the things that the, the client needed. And uh, so he, he sent the wrong medicines. Um, he ended up getting dragged into court. And uh, they were going to make this, this uh, court situation basically like many that had gone before of where, you know, here was this, this superstitious quack that was, was selling snake oil to people and they needed to be shut down and uh, all of this. And uh, Dr. Johnson had uh, several clients show up to court and testify that the work he had done for them uh, had been successful and that they were in good health. And so, um, you know, there was definitely uh, uh, what some saw as superstition and quackery, uh, the proof, uh, the proof of, of the uh, quality of a lot of the remedies was among the clients. And, uh, and that's how a lot of healers existed. Um, maybe not necessarily putting ads out, uh, while some did, including Dr. Johnson, uh, putting advertisements out. But a lot of times it was just, um, you know, word of mouth from clients who had successful treatments from these healers that was really the best ads. What was the association between hoodoo and charms for gambling? Well, you know, there was a, uh, let me speak to a specific region on that. Um, when we talk about uh, areas like in Memphis, um, 
there were specific materials, whether they be herbs, whether it be oils, perfumes, colognes, that were associated with success and good luck and the ability to draw in good luck. And so you would see, um, you know, uh, in some cases, someone might buy a, a bottle of Hoyt's cologne, a cologne that was typically associated with uh, the high life, with, you know, you've, you've made it, you smell good, you look good. And um, so that particular cologne became associated with the high life. And so you would find um, guys who were, you know, playing cards or going to shoot dice, um, maybe put a little bit of Hoyt's on, you know, before they do for good luck. Um, we know that we had, uh, um, you know, people who would go and, and go to the racetrack, uh, right across the bridge, uh, in Arkansas. And, uh, they would go down to Bill street and they would try to get, um, different oils and, and different powders that they could use. And even today you can still find, um, at uh, champions pharmacy off of Elvis Presley in Memphis, Dr. Champion. Uh, who's, who's been there for years, uh, offers a, a gambling oil that uh, if you're, you're on the road to Tunica to go play at the casinos, uh, you can buy some of his nice. gambling nice. To, to put on, the, <laughs> put on your hands. So uh, definitely that association with drawing in. And I mean, again, that's just a, it's just another example of that practice of being able to, to pull in uh, or repel utilizing a, a specific component. What's the kind of the concept of, uh, you, you write about this in the book, the hoodoo justice. And there's kind of a case from Nashville that you actually cite in this that I found really interesting. That was uh, the Canfield, the, um, that was uh, the, uh, with, with the, young the laundry, man was, uh, the laundry company. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, we saw in, in many different cases um, where hoodoo would be used uh, as a form of protection and in some cases retaliation. Um, you would have specific cases where um, someone was done wrong and maybe a family member seeks out the assistance of uh, a, a conjurer and utilizes different herbs or different roots um, to perform magical operations to get back at that particular person. And, um, you know, we even see um, back in the, the history of root work where, um, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass even talked about the power of the root. And in some cases, there were people who utilized the root and the power of the root when they couldn't physically fight back against, say, a slave owner. Um, that the, the root could be used and the, the potential uh, to, to perform spiritual operations with those components uh, was a lot of times the, um, you know, almost a form of therapy uh, when you couldn't physically attack somebody or, or you could, but uh, then, you know, you would, uh, it would be a bad situation for, for when you did that. So, uh, yeah, definitely. In many cases, these practices um, were were used for, as forms of protection. Do you see this this new American uh, tri or quadruple culture going on with with all these people's hoodoo's coming together into something something new? I mean, I'm from the Southwest, so I'm familiar with a lot of the 
the Native American stuff, but here, you know, you have everyone's everyone's finally getting proud of the more, um, you know, the, the things they used to kind of hide. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's definitely, there is, I, I think there is a, a interest in some cases that wasn't there before. And I, I contribute some of that to, um, the shaming of hoodoo in that there were different communities that might look at hoodoo as, um, that, that old superstition, that old pagan practice, that old, and, and always see it as something shameful, but now are realizing that it's not something that you should be ashamed of, that it was actually part of a traditional culture that survived. And I, I think societal attitudes toward it has sort of changed and has sort of um, changed the minds of, of, of some folks who maybe, you know, uh, wouldn't have been so proud before of, of the practices. I think also, um, I think the exposure to um, traditions, you know, there, there were a lot of traditions um, and, and a lot of different folk traditions universally that have only been practiced quietly among the communities in which they serve. But now with, you know, social media, with, with the, the internet in general, um, you know, you or I can find out about what might have been an obscure practice in a Panamanian village practiced only in the 70s. You know, and, and you know, 30 years ago, we would have never had access to even understand what that was unless we were in that particular community. Um, so I, I think awareness and I, I think um, also this this appreciation for um what the culture is and, and uh, as, the diversity. As, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I just, I really want to thank you. Cause I, th I think, you know, you're doing the most American thing you think of is really defending and upholding that very first of amendments and freedom of religion might even really come before freedom of speech. I mean, it's, it's up there, <laughs> you know, it's one of the very first pretexts of any of these the fruits of which we enjoy now and free thought, free inquiry, all these things. So I just, I just really want to thank your contribution to all that, Tony. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I, I would love to say it's something that, that, uh, I, I was born recognized, recognizing that, but I, I wasn't, and it's been a long road. And, you know, there, there was a time growing up that, that I really, you know, um, had a very different worldview, but mm -hmm. you know, you, your journey in life many times give you just uh, an intense paradigm shift that really changes your understanding of things. And um, I, I really think that um, I really think that a lot of heartbreak historically uh, could have been different yes. if we tried to understand each other instead yeah. of yeah. attack that which appears different to us. Yeah, well, and that's, agreed. that's what really hurt, you know, the most like reading this stuff and, you know, it's things I obviously already really knew and had confronted before, but realizing that, you know, people weren't able to 
yet even the most basic freedoms of belief you know and and the if we can make that if we can at least start to make that true here you know at least we can start trying to live up to these ideals right I I want to say too, Tony, that I'm very impressed by just the pictures that are in this book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of the, the yeah, uh, you're a great collector, and and following you yeah. on social media and stuff, you're such a great collector of of the, you know, like we didn't really get into a whole lot, but the commercialism of voodoo and stuff too, I think is is real beautiful. Part of the aesthetic traditions of advertising in the United States itself. Yeah, where did you find a lot of this material? A lot, a lot of these pictures, a lot of these posters. Like, where did you? How did you go about collecting a lot of this stuff? Uh, well, I, I will I will tell you. First, first let me say this uh, about a lot of the manufactured items. Um, there is a lot of controversy uh, among traditional practitioners um, as to, you know, are those material artifacts that are advertised, that are promoted as curios, you know, is that making money off of a culture? Is that... Um, watering down a culture. I can't answer that. But what I can say is my purpose in collecting these things is to show the prevalence of this culture in the Mid-South. Um, it, it's, it's not that I think it's great that we have a John the Conqueror candle that comes in three colors, uh, or that I think that's something that was traditionally used in Africa. Uh, by no means. But what is important is the prevalence of the culture was so intense, was so enormous that there were several huge companies dedicated to creating these products. And so to me, it just is evidence of the tradition. It's evidence that even if it's not considered, quote, pure tradition by some, that it that it's evidence that the, it was there. It was a witness to the prevalence of the culture. So, and to answer your, your, your question about where, you know, where some of this stuff came from, well, you know, I, I wish I could answer on some of that. You know, there was some stuff when I started doing this research that stuff would just come up and stuff would just uh, appear and you'd turn over one stone and another would appear. And um, the interesting thing that I found was a lot of these materials were available in in local uh, places, but it had always been overlooked. It would always been seen as, oh, that's just a, a news story about some guy doing some kind of weird practice or, oh, that's some kind of weird advertisement for some superstitious mumbo jumbo. And that's how it was considered. So a lot of this stuff has been there. We just haven't looked at it. And, and ultimately, that's what led to the secret history of Memphis Hoodoo was mm. we have had this tremendous history right under our noses. And it's not. And it's like it's popular esotericism. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it's, you know, it was the the enormity and the influence of these traditions affected daily life in the Mid-South. I mean, you know, we might think, oh, now and then you'll see an article in the paper these days or online about a, you know, particular uh, incident involving a, a spiritual worker. Uh, you know, we were finding in the, the Mississippi Delta, 
newspaper articles left and right on root workers who had either been arrested or root workers who, um, you know, were selling different products. And uh, it just, it's like there, there was a whole world within our world we didn't realize. And that's, that's the story. That's the story that that world uh, existed and that that culture survived uh, all that it did. All that is so absolutely fascinating. Yeah, this, this is this is great, Tony. Thanks a lot. This man. stuff really, the, all this folk magic stuff is really, uh, as we've said before, it's you know it's it's making a comeback. People are getting more and more interested in it. Um, guys like you and Jack that are out there and um, another David Metcalf, with David the Metcalf, right? You know, Jake out there and um, Jake Richards Appalachian and Appalachian stuff. stuff. It's really it's starting to to make a comeback, and people are really starting to really understand it. You know, like I said, I met Jack here at the Folk Magic Festival here at Aroma G to give him a plug here in Nashville. You know, so people are really, and and I've 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 noticed one thing that is that has happened that has been happening a lot, and I don't know what, what, if you want to speak to this, but a lot of women are getting involved with this Absolutely. folk magic, and 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 it's it's interesting to me that this is kind of that this is happening. Do you have any, any insights as to why that a lot of women are interested in this? You know, I. I- I can't really speak to that, but I, I, I can say this, you know, women were strong bearers of this tradition in the mid South. Right. And, and in many cases there were, there were female healers, uh, and spiritualists that were, uh, seen in, in a lot of times more powerful than, than male practitioners. Um, you know, it, it definitely, and you know, particularly when we get to talk about the spiritualist churches, you know, and you've you've got Mother Catherine Seals, and you have um, um, Mother Leafy Anderson, and uh, some of the huge, huge figures in the history responsible for uh, establishing churches and and uh, continuing these different traditions, and um, you know, in the Mid South, particularly with with African-American based hoodoo, we would see, um, motherly figures in the family, um, be the one that, that, that had the trust, you know, that, that they trusted grandmother who gave the remedies and there, there was a trust, uh, to, uh, a, a loving mother or, uh, a, a loving woman who, um, you know, could get you these medicines when, when you were in need. So, um, I, I, I can't speak to it as to what's right now because honestly, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, I would I would guess that there is there's empowerment there. I get, I would guess that um, there is uh, there are some uh, there are some elements that are comfortable and and um, familiar to a lot of devotees. Yeah, so it's less of a new movement with with women it's more of harking back to this matriarchal tradition that has gone on for thousands and thousands of years yeah there's definitely i mean you know one of the things that that we could see reflected among hoodoo history particularly in memphis is that while yeah um in the newspapers you would see a lot of uh male 
spiritual workers referenced, whether it was good stories or bad stories, um, that, that there were always female uh, healers who were, were at the forefront and, and uh, you know, knew, knew how to take care of things, uh, not only medicinally, but spiritually. Correct. Yeah. Uh, it's, it seems like there is a big tradition among females that goes back a long, long, long way. Thank you, Tony, so much. This has been very enlightening. I, I've, I've enjoyed having you on. Uh, there's other things that I want to talk to you about, but yeah. where can people find stories of root workers and hoodoo in the Mid-South? Um, the book is published through History Press, so you can find it through History Press. Um, you can also find it through Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and most major book outlets. Cool. Yeah, we actually bought ours over here at Aroma G here in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. We want to support the local mm -hmm. bookstore, mm -hmm. Colt Hoodoo Shop. And, and Tony, what's next for you? We know that you're working on the book with Jack. Um, what what else is coming down the pike? You know, I'm I'm actually doing some work on uh, researching. Um, <laughs> very very two actually two projects. Um, actually doing some work, uh, with, uh, some folks involved in folklore development, uh, in doing more with our traveling museum of, uh, West Tennessee hoodoo history. And, uh, so we, we've got, uh, some elements there we're, we're working on establishing and, uh, we've already, um, garnered a, a number of. Of, of teaching aids in the museum to be able to use to teach about uh, the, the culture and survival of these traditions here in the Mid-South. And uh, another project which is uh, down a very different road uh, is I'm, I'm actually working on a book focusing on um, the trend of physical violence related to exorcisms throughout the world. And, uh, that's, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, you, you probably saw the, the story out of Panama, um, um, a couple of weeks to a month or so back involving, um, a, a particular, uh, church who, um, murdered, um, uh, a number of folks and they, their, their focus was on driving the devil out of these particular. No, I actually have not folks. heard of this. Um, and then, you know, of, of course, through the years, um, I've, I've worked with some of the different uh, NGOs uh, regarding uh, some of the violent exorcisms uh, out of Africa and some of the different communities there with, with uh, child witch allegations. And, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, we're beginning to see a, a growing trend of violence related to uh, exorcisms, uh, not only, uh, internationally, but here, here in the U S as well. Thank you, Tony. Thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show. We're going to close this section out, but please stay on the line for us. And, uh, guys, we will be right back to close out this episode 301 on conspiracy normal.
that was uh, I thought a very good and um, extensive interview with Tony Kale. Yeah, that was that was great though. Tony really hanging there with us for a long time. And yeah, we even got some patron. Yeah, we did. We talked about a uh, local Nashville uh, character that's related to all the hoodoo stuff that he writes about. Um, that'll be out, I think, probably after this episode. You probably see that hop on on Friday. And uh, every you guys, week, yep, every week, major Patreon content. Yeah, you guys may have noticed that we have start doing that every single week on our Patreon, um, trying to give everybody their money's worth, whether you're at a dollar or whatever, you're going to uh, get your money's worth on Patreon. So. Every week we are doing something. Um, I think the last one we just did was something on the coronavirus, so you can hear some of our ideas and our thoughts on that. And we're just kind of doing that uh, mostly, not with guests, although if they agree to do it, we usually do like a short segment with them. Some special themed segments. Yeah, yeah. So we've we've got that going on right now on Patreon. And uh, Sergio can tell you where to go to uh, find all that extra content. You can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal or make a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. Yep, and I'm going to try to have a uh, paypal.me link on there as well so you guys can start making those donations on the website. Um, As we announced in episode 300, Strange Realities 2020 is happening it's happening. It's happening. September 25th through twenty through the 27th here in Nashville at SIR Nashville, where we did it last time. And this time we're having a three-day event, guys. Or yeah. three, at least three, two nights and a day event. Bigger and better. Yep, bigger and better. Uh, so we're right now formulating what our price point is going to be, what the different ticket tiers are going to be. So stay tuned, guys, to our website about that. And stay tuned to the show about that. Stay tuned to our strangerealitiesconference.com about that as well. There will be more announcements about that as we go along. We've got a great lineup for you guys this year. Some returning guests and also some new speakers as well. Uh, Remember... Guys who support us on Patreon, like we said, support us with five-star reviews on the iTunes and also on Facebook. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter. We have a YouTube account, Conspiracy Normal Podcast. Help us get to 1,000 on there. And we also have Instagram, but uh, we're being inundated by Russian bots. No, they're not all Russian. They, the Russians posing as as uh, Indonesians, right? Now, right. Yeah, we, we don't know what's really going on. We don't know who's real and who's not. So if you sent us a request and you haven't seen it being accepted, you might have gotten <laughs> deleted because we don't know what's so, happening. Especially our international brothers and sisters. Right, exactly. So if you are interested in in following us on, we are private because we don't want a whole bunch of Russian bots inundating the system. Please send us a message saying, hey, I'm a real person or something. Yeah. Or our our uh, Discord. Yeah, we have a Discord. So you can come talk to us in real life on Discord. Yeah, I guess the way we I don't think it has as many. normal podcast. Yeah, yeah, you should be able to find us. I don't think it has as many uh, 
reasons for bots to follow us on right there. yeah you can you can find us on there too all right guys uh we got some great stuff lined up join us next week we're going to talk about the liminal earth on conspiranormal <laughs> Sold at gyms. My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.